IBEC, the voice of Irish business. Welcome back to IBEC Voices. In this episode, we will be exploring a transformative approach to promoting gender equality and preventing sexual harassment in both the personal and professional spheres. We are joined by Dr. Cara McGann, IBEC Head of Social Policy, and Jackson Katz, PhD, educator and thought leader, internationally renowned for his pioneering scholarship and activism on issues of gender, race and violence. My name is Cara McGann and I'm Head of Social Policy with IBEC. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jackson Katz, internationally renowned speaker, educator and thought leader in a range of areas, including gender equality and gender violence. IBEC had the pleasure of inviting Jackson to be our keynote speaker at the Keep Well Summit this year to talk about a transformative approach to promoting gender equality and preventing sexual harassment. Jackson, you're, you're really welcome. It's great to be with you, Cara, and I really enjoyed being over and working with your um, with all the, the folks at IBEC. It was a great experience for me, so it's great to be with you as well. Thank you. Great. I, I suppose Ireland, like many other jurisdictions, has made some real progress around gender equality over the last number of decades, and we've we've seen real change in both the personal and professional lives, particularly of women, which impacts the individual, the family, the organization, and society. But I suppose over the last few years, maybe since the hashtag MeToo movement, but also throughout the pandemic and and since, a real spotlight has been shone on how fragile some of that hard-won progress actually is and maybe how not as far progressed as we would like to be when we hear of these kind of growing levels of gender-based violence and a wave of reports from women, men and others who talk about the variety of unwelcome attitudes or behaviours or inappropriate actions that they've experienced both in and outside of the workplace. Jackson, I suppose addressing this issue is an area of work that you've been passionate about for many years. In your experience, what are the root causes underlying that sexual harassment, abusive acts, you know, and all those increasing forms of of gender-based violence that are occurring in our supposedly civilised societies? Well, that, that's an appropriately ambitious question, Kara, because the, the, the topic is a very big topic because this is not just about individual pathology or some, you know, men or young men who have some issues or that need to be addressed. It's, it's much bigger than that because domestic and sexual violence and sexual harassment in the workplace, these are all manifestations of gender inequality. And yet over the past, say, half century, women... And, and I'm making a really broad statement here, but women in a you know multiracial, multi-ethnic, global sense have made enormous gains, enormous uh, progress in, in so many different ways, right? In terms of challenging male power, if you will, or men's exclusive power in all these domains, in business, in politics, in, in education, in the professions, in social life, even in religious and other kinds of cultural practice, there's been an incredible revolution happening. It's not, it's and it's ongoing. But men's power, if you will, vis-a-vis women, and and again, I know it's more than men and women because there's a broader gender and uh, sexual identity spectrum beyond men and women. But certainly, over the past couple of thousand years or many thousands of years, in virtually every society in the world, men have had enormous advantages and have maintained power and control institutionally, politically, within families. And so you have over the past half century, and it's longer than that, but certainly an acceleration since the 1970s of women's sustained efforts to to achieve justice and fairness and equality and equal treatment and equity and all these other things. 
and including in the workplace. And there's been pushback. Let's be honest. There's been pushback. I mean, it's not going to be easy to undo thousands of years of you know cultural conditioning and institutional practice. And I'm not saying that individual men or young men who act out in ways that are harmful to women or to other men or, or what have you are necessarily conscious of blocking women's progress by acting in the ways that they do. But let's be honest, that's what they're doing, whether it's on the micro level of interpersonal relationships like domestic, you know, domestic abuse, where a man is using force or the threat of force to gain or maintain control or compliance of her, say it's a heterosexual relationship of his wife or his girlfriend to, you know, meet his demands, meet his concerns, meet his needs. And he's going to use force or the threat of it to get it if he can't get it in other ways. That's not, by the way, that's not genetically programmed into the, into the male, uh, you know, child at, at birth. That's, you know, what some people would call learned behavior. And I don't even like the word learned behavior because I like to say it's taught behavior because everything that's learned is also being taught. So the question is, how, how are we still teaching boys and men in the 21st century that being a man means you should be on center stage? You should be the one in control. You should be the leader. And if women try to usurp that from you or they don't allow you to express yourself in that way, then somehow you're authorized to make them do it or to act in ways that gain their compliance. Now, some people might hear this as being a little overdrawn because if we're talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, that's not the same as domestic abuse or, or sexual assault, but they're all connected. And the reason why they're connected is because they're all connected to a belief system that underlies them. The belief is, I have the right to do this. I have, I'm authorized to do it. I'm entitled to her body. I'm entitled to act like this. I'm in some cases resentful if somebody challenges my authority in this. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have these problems, because we still have yet to figure out how to successfully integrate men, young men and boys, again, across the racial and ethnic spectrum globally, into a new way of understanding justice, fairness and equality and equity. And in some some of the ways this shows up in the workplace is sometimes men will say, well, it's always been like this or, or what do you, you know, what do you mean? I don't even know what the rules are anymore. It's like, oh my God, you know, it's like, you can't even say a, a woman is looking nice today and, to, and somebody's going to accuse you of being a, a sexist or, you know, misogynist. And I think some of what you see on the micro level of that kind of pushback is the pushback in a society that is transforming, that is trying to understand how to integrate women's desires for and demands for being treated with equality and justice and fairness. And and yet the, the cultural lag where so many men feel like it's always been this way. This is not a big deal. Why are you trying to, you know, uh, you know, rain on our parade here and you need to lighten up. Uh, you need to get a sense of humor. I think some of this we're going to be litigating socially, politically in the workplace for many decades to come. So this is not like a, a short term fix for a long-term problem. You need, we need to be all in it for the long haul. I think that's, that's such an interesting overview of it, but, but I think you really touched in on some, some key elements that as you say, get that pushback when things are challenged in any way from the status quo that they were. And, and that one that we hear here quite a bit is, is, you know, it's just a bit of banter, you know, and, and not seeing maybe how that, joking along or staying silent even where those misogynistic or, or sexist comments or behaviors occur actually communicates either acceptance or tacit approval. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard one to address and a hard one, as you say, to, to kind of have people take seriously as to the spectrum of areas that that actually touches into. 
It's true, and I, and I appreciate that. And I also appreciate, by the way, for men, including myself, it's. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. So I'm not, and I don't want to sound care self righteous about this. Like I've got it figured out. I, I might have some insight, but I'm also a human being with my own struggles and trying to figure it out, all this out. And I'm sure I cross lines with, that I don't intend to cross. And it's it's complicated and messy stuff. And so I, I I don't mean like I do think we need to expect more from men. I do think that we need more men who are willing to take some risks and be leaders and be strong and takes you know and and stand with women strongly about on these matters and not allow it only to be women in whether it's in workplaces in the in schools or in you know and even in politics have them stand alone in their you know fight for being treated with respect and dignity i think we need a whole lot more from men but i'm also empathetic with men i think we i think a lot of men are confused i think a lot of young men are at sea on these matters i think that a lot of young men get mixed messages all over the place about what is expected of them what does it mean to be a strong man in the 21st century and i think one of the failures that in our societies has been among adult men, whether they're fathers, uncles, you know, other men in the lives of boys, but also in, in positions of institutional leadership, coaches, teachers, principals, business leaders, labor leaders, political leaders. In other words, men who have influence at all different levels on the micro or the macro level. I think a lot of us haven't done a good enough job of helping young men navigate some of these complex waters. And by the way, one of the reasons why a lot of adult men haven't done a good job is because we haven't got it figured out either. And I think a lot of these young guys are dealing with a more diverse peer culture, a more diverse workplace, both ethnically and racially, but also gender and sexually than some of us older guys. In other words, the young, the, the guys in their 20s have a completely different generational experience in terms of their expectation of female peers and colleagues and bosses and things like that than some of the older guys. So it's hard to mentor somebody who's younger than you when that younger person has, I don't know, even more expansive ideas about this subject than you do. So there's, there's also mentoring going on by the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings for the 50 and 60-somethings, which is crazy on one level, but it's it's real. And so I think all of this, I just think we need sometimes to take a deep breath and say, you know, okay, this is this is hard work. It's not easy. And and I, and I wish we, we would honestly give each other a break more often. Like, like you're going to screw up and, you know, men are going to screw up. Even well-intending men who are good people, who are trying to do the right thing, are going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. And I don't think that makes you a bad person. And I don't think that it, and, and I also don't think that because you're, because you're criticized, if you will, for your behavior, which does happen, and I'm not a, a naive at all about this, um, I don't think retreating and going under your, you know, shell, if you will, and you know, closing off in response to that is a good solution. I think I think you you need to hear feedback. You need to take it in, um, and if you do, if you don't agree with it, you don't agree with it. But if you if you if it gives you new insight into what your behavior is or how the how that those jokes are landing in the workplace, you know, maybe not the way you intended, but they are landing that way. So you need to think about it. One last thing. There's a woman here in the United States. She's a longtime activist in the domestic and sexual violence space, but she's also an educator and she teaches at Smith College. Her name is Loretta Ross, and she's an African-American woman. She has this concept of calling in versus calling out. And so instead of calling out bad behavior, like you better stop doing this, this is toxic masculinity or, or toxic whiteness or whatever, that's a calling out kind of thing. She says, and I agree with her 100%, obviously, we need to call in people like we need more you know white people who are willing to take some risks for racial justice we need we need more men who are willing to be called in to 
community with women and, and others in a diverse gender and sexual sort of identity spectrum. We need you. We need you to be part of this movement. We need you to be part of this change. And I think a lot of men in particular in this subject matter can hear the calling in more than they can hear the calling out. I, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's a much more inclusive way of, of bringing people with you rather than, as you say, apportioning blame when, as you say, we didn't get here necessarily by choice. This was cultural and everything else. It makes me wonder as well around, you know, oftentimes when something breaks around, you know, sexual harassment or abusive behaviors, there can be a flurry of hashtags that says not all men or men who are outraged that, you know, that women would consider them a threat. What do you say when you hear not all men? Well, Karen, the first thing I say, and I've been talking about this a lot in the last, you know, in my public talks for, you know, since, you know, basically since Me Too, really, uh, the Me Too movement. But my, my, the, the, way, the way I frame it is, if you're a man and your impulse is to say not all men in response to women's frustrations, sometimes righteous anger about being treated with disrespect and sexism and misogyny, if you're a man and your response or your impulse is to say, not all men, suppress the impulse. It's not a good look. You sound like you're defensive, you sound like you're ignorant, and you sound like you're not listening to what the women are saying. Of course it's not all men who are committing acts of abuse and harassment. And and the other thing is, there's a way for men to react to all of this that is not defensive. And, and a big part of my work is trying to figure that out. It's been that, I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time, and, and, and it's my colleagues and I, I think long ago, figured out ways to work with men that reduce men's defensiveness. But one of the ways to sort of transform the way that men engage with the subject matter is to say to them, look, you can either be defensive and claim it's not all men and claim you're not the problem, or you can get out there and do something about it and be and, and show by your actions that you're not one of those guys or that you're going to be better or that you're going to be a leader. And if you can do that, I think that's much more constructive than just, oh, it's not me. I'm not the problem. And by the way, most men say, you know, most men say that they're good guys and that other guys have the problem. So most men will, will say, I don't sexually harass women. I don't abuse, you know, my girlfriend or my wife. I'm, I don't sexually assault women. Most men say this. And by the way, even many men who have committed the, these acts disidentify with those acts. So for example, on university campuses in the United States, the vast majority of men who commit sexual assault do not see themselves in any way as sexual assaulters. They don't see themselves as rapists. They don't think what they've done is criminal. They might think that they're uh, sexually aggressive, but within a normative range. Okay, so if you go into a room full of men and, and, and you talk to them as if they're either perpetrators or potential perpetrators, most of the men are going to completely disidentify with that. If you're going to talk to men as if they're sexual harassers, most men will disidentify with that because even men who have committed what can be um, objectively understood as acts of sexual harassment, most of the men who commit that don't see themselves as having committed sexual harassment. They think that they're flirting. They think that, they're, that it's not a big deal. They think that, oh, I just put my arm around her. Are you kidding me? This is not a, I mean, and then when they hear that being described as, you know, crossing a line or sexual harassment, a lot of those men are righteously indignant, not because they're just trying to get up, get away with it, and they don't want to be punished. Although I'm sure that that's part of the motivation. It's because they genuinely don't believe that what they've done is really wrong. They think it's exaggerated. They think, I mean, they think that you know, defining this behavior as somehow you know deviant or criminal is 
not criminal. I don't mean criminal in the sense of putting your arm around a woman, but I mean, I mean, I'm just saying that to think that their behavior is somehow unacceptable outside of a, uh, outside of a certain norm. And by the way, the last thing about this, that's why what has to change are the understanding of and the practice of norms and normative behavior. Because if so many men are engaging in behavior that is objectively speaking, problematic or, you know, or crossing lines or in some cases even illegal. If so many men are doing that and thinking that what they're doing is okay, then what's implicated are the norms in whether it's in the society or in the subculture or in the workplace or what have you. And until we change those norms, we could be running from one individual to the next and trying to figure out what went wrong with him. What went wrong with him? Does he have a drinking problem? Does he have bad childhood? Does he have some kind of mental block on these matters? You know, and that's like hopeless. We, we just, that's like whack-a-mole. We're just going to be running from one incident to the next without any sense of changing the underlying um, beliefs and, and systemic forces that are producing these problems. It, it's such a complex place to be, as you say, that you could end up literally spiraling after the individual situation rather than trying to address the underlying culture and the underlying norms, as you've, as you've mentioned. Another thing we, we hear a lot about from women is so many women have examples of or, or talk about having experienced the misconduct or the violations of consent or the inappropriate behaviors. But on one hand, some fear, really fear speaking up about it, maybe being labeled a troublemaker, you know, doubting sometimes that they'd be supported or even believed because what they're describing is often that series of supposedly innocuous actions or comments or events that are together creating this climate of intimidation and fear and insecurity. And then on the other hand, others seem to have almost resigned themselves to this being part of the landscape in our country, in our workplaces and the places that we socialize. You know, many women talk about staying silent or trying to stay away from the perpetrator or get themselves out of difficult situations and ultimately maybe even leaving their jobs rather than addressing the issues head on for fear of the impact on, on them. H- how do we tackle this? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, the one piece that I, that I think I can chip away at in this conversation is we need more men who are willing to say these things and not leave women out there as the only people who are bringing it up. And I don't mean just women who have directly experienced harm. I'm talking about women who are in position of leadership. It's not fair to put, for example, in the corporate space or, or in, the, in the private sector more generally, put the bur- burden on women always to be the ones who have to talk about this, who always have to bring it up at meetings, who always have to be the ones who talk about the policy, who have to talk about you know, the normative practices within the company or the organization. I mean, I respect and appreciate that there's been incredible leadership on the part of women, but we need more from men. We need more men who are willing to do that. We need more men who are willing to talk about this stuff, to bring it up, not just to wait to be asked to bring it up, but to bring it up. We need more men, especially in positions of leadership and formal leadership. Anybody can be a leader. Anybody can act as a leader. You don't have to have a formal position of leadership to act as a leader. And I, I say this all the time because, you, you know, a young guy who turns to his friend who just told a rape joke and says, look, can you joke about something else? I don't find that funny. That, like, that young guy, that 16-year-old boy, that's just has just committed a leadership act. Because that's what a leader does, right? You see a situation of potential harm. The harm would be the normalization of something that shouldn't be normalized. You've thought about your responsibilities, whether you're conscious of it or not, to the various parties involved, to women, to your, you know, the women you care about, to your friend who just told the joke, and maybe you care about him being a better person, and maybe maybe joking like that is not a good look for him. 
you, you think about your responsibility to yourself and your own values, you know, I mean, there's so many ways in which you have to think about your responsibilities to others and to yourself when you encounter situations. But then if you're a 16 year old boy, whose friend just told a rape joke and you say to him, that's not funny. You've kind of cycled through some options, whether again, you're conscious of it or not about what you can do in the situation. And then you've chosen one and you've acted on it. So you're actually being a leader, that's a, that's a leadership protocol, what I just described. So, and you don't have any sort of formal title, but men who have formal titles, like managers, directors, CEOs, you know, um, coaches, uh, administrators, uh, you know, there's so many different ways in which men have formal titles. By definition of that formal leadership position, you need to do a number of things, right? And one, and, and I'll, I'll just give you the, you know, the, the highlights. You need to figure out how you can support victims and survivors and targets of harassment, abuse, and violence, regardless of their gender. But certainly if you're a man, you, you also need to be aware that you need to have a special responsibility to, to support uh, women who have been harmed by sexism and misogyny. You have to figure out how you can interrupt abusive behavior and challenge it and make it clear that it's not okay. And then you need to be, be able to figure out how you can create a climate within that organization, within that company, within that workplace, whereby the abusive behavior is seen as completely socially unacceptable and contrary to the group's values. And you need to do that not because you're, an, in this case, a nice guy helping out the women, who's re- that's really their concern, but because you're a leader and we expect that of our leaders. And if we can get to the place in our societies where men in, and young men who are either in positions of leadership or aspiring to that know that these are basic elements of the expectations of a leader, supporting victims and survivors, challenging and interrupting abusers and holding them accountable and creating that climate. If we can get to that place, then a lot of men and young men who ordinarily wouldn't be sort of eager to sign up for voluntary classes on, you know, anti-sexism or something are going to know that that's, it's not really optional. If you want to be successful in this workplace, if you want to be successful in this professional endeavor, this is just part of the, uh, the toolkit that you need to be able to, um, you know, you know, master in the 21st century. And if you can't, then you're not ready to be a leader. And if we frame it this way, if we frame it aspirationally and positively, like, like it's a positive thing, we want you to rise to this. We want better leadership in the 21st century. We know so much more than we knew 20, 30, 40 years ago about all of this. And we expect, you know, the leaders who are the first among equals, we, we expect them to be able to navigate this better than others. And if you, again, if you're not ready to do that, then you're not ready to be a leader. That's a game changing way of understanding all of this. It brings it to a very different level. At the Keepwell Summit, you said, and, and I'm hoping I'm, I'm quoting you correctly, but the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. And I thought it was a really powerful statement. Can you tell us a little bit about bystander intervention theory and, and your work in that area? Sure. Well, Kara, what you're quoting is General David Morrison, who is okay. the former <laughs> chief of the army, the head of the army in Australia, in the Australian army, who, with whom I've worked directly. Um, but his phrase is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And that's his articulation of the bystander approach, which, you know, I was honored to be, you know, trained up, you know, him and many of his senior generals and colonels in the Australian army, among others in the bystander approach, in in leadership around this subject matter. The bystander approach in a nutshell, because there's so much more to it than can possibly be explored in this space. But the, the bystander approach in a nutshell is thinking about how everybody in a given peer culture 
a workplace, a school, a team, a community, a family, how everybody can play a constructive role in supporting people who are experiencing abuse, in challenging and interrupting abuse, and in helping to create that climate, as I've said. Historically, things that were called prevention efforts, like uh, initiatives to, to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace or domestic abuse in the community or sexual assault on university campuses. Historically, the focus of those programs was on the victims and the, and the potential victims and survivors. And for example, women were taught and still are to this day, don't put your drink down at parties, look in the back CD car before you get in, have a buddy system. If you're going to be drinking alcohol, make sure that you know who your friends are with or who they might go home with. And all of this is good advice to people in terms of safety and such. But it's not prevention. It's risk reduction or harm reduction. And prevention and risk reduction are not the same thing. And historically, the approaches to prevention that many people use, this is before the 1990s. Historically, the the approach to prevention was to teach men what the law is, what is what how do you define consent, you know, when it comes to sexual consent especially involving alcohol. In the workplace, sexual harassment, these are the policies. This is crossing the line. Uh, you know, I, I, I've worked with organizations in the past that had this, you know, green light, yellow light, red light. You know, green light means you can proceed. You know, yellow light means caught, be cautious. Red light means stop. I mean, the problem is focusing on men as perpetrators or potential perpetrators is, as I said earlier, most men don't even identify as perpetrators or potential perps. And they tune you out and they think this is not my issue. It's not, it's for those guys, not me. And the bystander approach is a way to say, you know what? It's not just about, you know, victims and perpetrators. It's everybody else. So what can everybody else in a given peer culture do? When it comes to men, to get real specific, the idea is to get men to challenge other men or interrupt other men's enactment of harassment, abuse, misogyny by saying to them or doing something to interrupt it. So for example, if you're a guy in a workplace and you have a guy sitting at the next cubicle back in the day when people sat at the next cubicle, I mean, I know that there's some workplaces that are still in the physical space and people are near each other, but so you have a guy maybe down the you know hall from you or something, but anyways, you hear, you hear him make comments that you know are problematic or that are not consistent with the company's values. And you know that this is not really right. You know, he shouldn't be saying stuff like this, right? Say it's about women's bodies or something, right? He's your friend. He's your colleague. What do you do about it? Let's not talk about why he's doing it, right? Or, or you know, what's going on for him. Or even the experience of what's happening for her or for women, you know, in, in the general sense in the workplace. Let's talk about what do you do about it? Because the, the focus of the bystander approach is not why he did it or how she's experiencing it. It is what do you do about it? You're the friend, you're the colleague. And we know that if people think they only have two options when they, when they encounter situations like this, and the two options they think they have are, one, report this to the chain of command, which is to say, report it to human resources or in some ways, you know, make it known to the authorities, which by the way, you could be initiating a chain of events that could result in the per- person losing his job. And maybe you don't want that to happen. You like him. You don't think what he's done is worthy of losing a job. You just think what he's doing is wrong. But if the one choice is to report it to the authorities, whoever that might be, and the second choice is to do nothing, it's none of my business, I'm not going to get involved with this, it's kind of messy, and I'm just going to pretend that I didn't hear this, 
If those are the two choices, people, you know what they often do? They choose to do nothing. They choose to put their head down. They choose to pretend they didn't see what they just saw. But it's a false set of choices. There's so many other things you can do. So the bystander approach is a, is, is a conceptual model that tells you there are things that we can all do. And then it's it gets real specific and concrete in a workshop setting of like, okay, what does that look like? What are your options? And what are the reasons why you would choose this one and not that one? And how about what do other people in the room think? In other words, what do your colleagues think about this kind of stuff? Because we also know, Kara, from, again, decades of research, not my re- personal research, but it's now over 20 years of research that the single most important factor for men and young men about whether they will intervene or speak up in some situation involving sexism or misogyny among their peers is if they think that other men in the group are also uncomfortable with the behavior. If they think that they're the only one who's uncomfortable, they're much less likely to do something about it for obvious reasons, because there's more risk involved if you are all alone, because you know that if you say something and nobody else agrees with you, it could ru- hurt your social standing. You could be punished. You could, in some way, socially, you could lose something, some status. It could be awkward in your interactions with your peers. And so a lot of guys think, you know what, I, I don't like this, but I'm not going to say something because it's not worth it. But if they realize that other guys in their group and other women and others but certainly in this case, other guys are also not comfortable with the behavior of their of the other colleague, right? If they know that, then they're more likely to say something. So part of what a workshop setting does, and you can't do this in an online training. You cannot do this in checking a box of, these are my options, sitting at a computer screen and typing it in. This has got to be an, a dialogue. It's got to be interactive. So you, they hear from other guys. And you'll, what you'll often hear from other guys, if you're a guy sitting there, is like, yeah, I was in a situation like that just like this last month and I didn't really know what to do. And I wasn't, so you, so the guys hear their friends saying that, not just the expert or the leader of the, or the facilitator of the workshop, they hear it from their peers. And so the next time they encounter a situation, they're more likely to act because they've thought through some of this. They, they thought through their ethical obligations. That's it. That's the other thing. A lot of this is about ethics. It's about what are your what are your obligations to be a good person, to be a good member of this workplace, a member of the group, a member of the team. What are your responsibilities to yourself, to your own moral code of behavior? Of 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 are you the kind of person who sees yourself as somebody who speaks up in the face of injustice? Well, this is injustice. What do you do about it? And by the way, it's a lot easier to say, "Oh, I would definitely say something. I would definitely do something." Then it is in re- it's easier to say that than it is do it in real life because we know in real life there's all these disincentives for saying something because. Often there's, you know, consequences that aren't always positive. And one last thing about in the, in the MVP model, that's the Mentors in Violence Prevention model. That's the program that I created back in the early 90s in the sports culture that moved into the military and all these other places. And it was the, it was the program that create, that uh, introduced the bystander approach to the whole field. Now people all over the world are using bystander training of some kind. I mean, th- people have different approaches. I have my own approach and I think my, mine and my colleagues is, you know, is, is the is the is the most transformative of the approaches because we talk honestly about all of this we talk about gender and we talk about race and ethnicity we don't pretend that we're all the same we don't pretend that everybody has a role to play and we're not going to use any any gender or race specific uh language because that's not the real world i mean there's there's there's, the real world is the reason why so few men speak out on these matters is not because they're people who are filled with anxiety. It's because they're men who have absorbed from the earliest moments when they were boys a certain code of 
conduct and behavior and expectation. And they know that if they violate that in some way, they're going to take a risk. So you have to bring it to the surface and talk about it or it's, it's hopeless. If you have these conversations in workplaces, and by the way, I think this has got to start in the educational system much earlier. So it shouldn't be the first place that somebody is encountering bystander training, um, leadership training. By the way, bystander and leader, are this. it should be in the workplace. It should be in school. But the bystander who speaks up, as I said earlier about the 16-year-old boy who interrupted his friend who told a rape joke, the bystander who speaks up is actually a leader because that's a leadership act. So mm-hmm. the active bystander is a leader. And the reason, why, again, why that's such a, I think, a game changer is that it's positive and aspiration. We're saying we need more men and young men who have the willingness, who have the strength, the self-confidence to speak up, to stand up, to be leaders, as opposed to wagging our finger at them and telling them they're bad, they're toxic, stop doing bad behavior. It's calling them in to being a better leader and a better person. And I think I think personally that when men hear this, as well as when women and others hear this, because the, the bystander stuff is across the board, when people hear that they're being asked to step up to be better versus don't do it because you know, you're know you bad or the behavior is bad and, and you don't want to be associated with it, I think people can respond. And that's, in a nutshell, the bystander approach. Just finally, maybe, and, and Jackson, you've touched on this in, in the sense of that, you know, calling in um, in terms of that leadership element and obviously the, the bystander approach in its entirety. But what advice would you have for organizations who want to, to take real meaningful action in shaping these healthy and respectful and inclusive workplaces and, and also trying to eradicate those attitudes and behaviors? What should be our first step or where we start from here that you would advise organizations? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I'm, I, I appreciate the question. I think we need to start with the leadership at the most senior levels within companies, within organizations. And we need to have leadership training at all levels, but it needs to start at the top. And I think that everybody has a role to play from the newest young employee to the, to the top of the food chain. But, but I think what historically has been the case often, not always, but often among leaders of organizations, of companies, is they'll say, or institutions like the U.S. military, they'll say, well, our young troops, they need the uh, education, they need the, the guidance because they, a lot of them come from difficult backgrounds and they're young and there's a lot of testosterone or estrogen. You know, there's a lot of sexual hormones and there's also lots of uh, you know, drinking and alcohol. And, and so, yeah, we need, they, we need the training for those young people. But me, I'm a 47 year old colonel. You know, like I, I don't really go to parties with the, you know, the troops. So I don't really need this training, which to me is like the most ridiculous and simple minded understanding of leadership and what leadership entails. So I, I, I think what we need is people who are in positions of leadership in corporations and organizations need to say, you know what? I need better training on this. I need to be a better leader on this. I'm going to expect this of all levels of everybody in my company or my organization, but I'm going to show that I care about it and that I take it seriously by myself, beginning the training with me and my senior administrators. Senior administrators, by the way, and senior business leaders, they also have their own peer culture. They have a supervisory authority and a hierarchical relationship to the rest of the workforce, but they also have their own peers. And at the level of their, you know, attainment of, of influence within the company or within the organization. And there are dynamics in their own peer culture that have to be addressed. And by the way, to say that sexual harassment and other sort of rule breaking or boundary crossing doesn't happen among senior leaders is ridiculous. Of course it happens. 
it ha- and it happens at the 23 year old and it happens in the 60 year old right i mean all of us have a, a stake in creating healthier communities and healthier workplaces. So I would say companies and organizations, they they need to have leadership training. And by the way, I I frame gender violence prevention and sexual harassment prevention training as leadership training. If you look at the leadership training and the leadership sort of literature in the business world, for example, this stuff isn't even mentioned often in the leadership literature. And it's like a fundamental part of leadership. Like in other words, Preventing sexual harassment and creating healthier workplaces around this subject matter should be understood as a basic leadership imperative and responsibility. And so I think if we can get it to the place where that becomes normative and that, again, young people who are entering companies or organizations who want to move up the chain, they need to know from the beginning that an expectation of the more leadership you have, the more that you're going to speak out on these matters, the more present you're going to be, including if you're a man. And that's not been understood over the years. Over the years, it's been mostly, oh, that's a women's concern. And yes, that we have, we have a strong woman. We just hired a strong woman in this department and she's going to, you know, she's the one who has some background in this and she's going to take care of this. It's like, okay, what about you? If you're the man, if you're a man and you're in a position of leadership, why do you have to say that we're going to need to hire a woman to deal with this? I mean, Who's committing most sexual harassment? Is it women? No, it's not women. And it's it's men. And so wh- why as a man should she be or should women be the ones who are most responsible for addressing it? Isn't that a, isn't that a form of a subtle form of victim blaming? I don't I don't buy it. But but that's that's where the paradigm shift comes, right? That's why this is this involves a, a new way of thinking. It's not just about a specific policy and following through. That's true too. You have if you have policies and you don't follow through on them, if you have protocols and you don't follow through on them, then it sends the message throughout the system, throughout the organization, throughout the company that, you know, leadership isn't really taking this stuff seriously. And by the way, can I just say one last thing? We have to be proportionate because I know that some people hear this and think, what is, what is it what are they saying? We need to just throw you out because you've committed this transgression? No, I'm not saying that. I think I think we have to figure out ways of integrating people back into, you know, responsible community without uh, just casting them out. I think I think that people make mistakes and I think people need to be brought back in. And I think this is one of the ways that restorative justice works, you know, that we're trying to figure out in the United States how to break down the system of mass incarceration. Because if you're going to just go to the, you know, the uh, legal penalties for, for transgressions, always, the only thing you're going to do is, you know, lock them up if they commit this crime or or cross this line, the only solution is to lock them up. I mean, that's it's been a problem forever, and it's increasingly a problem, in part because communities of color and impoverished communities are much more likely to, to face the consequences than our communities that are have more resp- uh, excuse me more means, more ways of protecting themselves. But the concept of restorative justice is like you've done something wrong, you've committed some harm, you have to acknowledge it, but the penalty isn't always you know, lock them up, throw them out, fire them. It's other ways to make the victim whole and return the the uh, equilibrium to the system that you've disrupted. And you can do that in ways that are more thoughtful and expansive than simply punishment. punishment. So I, I'm saying that because I, I do think we have to figure out there have to be consequences for transgression and for, and for people who cross lines. But it doesn't always have to be the go-to method. And we have to be more expansive in our understanding of what it means to, you know, make somebody whole who has been harmed. Um, And by the way, one thing we know from, again, this is 
basic stuff in the in the in the sort of victim survivor sort of universe over the past several decades is that often people who have been harmed, including women who have been sexually har- harassed or or even sexually uh, assaulted, often the, the most important thing they want is an acknowledgement of the harm that was done to them. And some cases, an apology, certainly an acknowledgement, but, cer- but, but in some cases, an apology more than they want sure and certain punishment for the transgressor or for the abuser. I'm not saying that in some cases that's not the appropriate punishment. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that if you listen to survivors, they'll often say, I want to be acknowledged. I want this person to acknowledge that they've done this harm. I want the system to make it clear that this is not okay. And, um, and you know, how can we get to there? I think that's part of our challenge going forward in the next, you know, 10 years, you know, 20 years, trying to figure this out is, is one of the big challenges. In addition, by the way, to all the other challenges we have as a species, but a lot of the other challenges we have as a species will be better dealt with if we have people working collaboratively in these in in these multiracial, multiethnic, multigender, and sexual environments as friends and colleagues and partners, rather than being seen as always at each other and you know and 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 sort of con- as somehow our goals are in conflict. Because I don't ultimately, I don't think that's true. I think that our goal, we have sh- many shared goals. And I think that if we can focus on the shared goals and figuring out better ways of working together, everybody benefits. Most definitely. Jackson, I think you've given us huge food for thought and, and really practical actions that we all have a responsibility to take. And while the major issues of gender-based violence are often what we focus on, I suppose at the base of all of those are those attitudes, those norms, those behaviours, those values and beliefs that allow these things to exist. And we all have to take action uh, to, to, to interrupt or to challenge them going forward. Thank you so much for, for uh, your time and for, for sharing your thoughts with us. Well, thank you very much, Kara. And it was, it's been a pleasure work, working with you and your colleagues at IBEC and, uh, and, and carry on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of IBEC Voices. To listen to more IBEC podcasts, please visit ibec.ie slash podcasts.